This week, we're going to Belfast for a gripping, fascinating piece about HIV stigma by the folks behind the Smash Cut podcast. Later, I'll talk to Alexander, one of the artists behind that podcast, about dignity, drag, and the horrors of Grinder. This is Radio Drama Revival. Hey folks, welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, David Reinstrom. Smash Cut is an experimental kind of audio fiction podcast. The people behind it are all theater artists of one kind or another, and they bring to this medium a sort of genre-busting impulse that I don't actually see that often. They've stitched together a drama from real-life voicemails, they've transmuted truth into lies, and they have generally make cool, audacious stuff. They were originally based in Louisiana, but now they're somewhat scattered around the United States. Alexander Charles Adams, one of the founders of the podcast, had a fellowship in Belfast, Northern Ireland earlier last year, and when they were out there, they encountered an actor named Matthew while working on a different project. Matthew is HIV positive and very open about it, and even among the gay community within Belfast, he's subject to a lot of stigma, fear, and BS. What you're about to hear, Hi, I'm Maddie, is a verbatim piece. This is a dramatized reproduction of actual conversations Maddie had using the gay dating app Grindr. This piece contains explicit language, human cruelty, and hope. Take a listen. He's a tart, left arrow emoji. Night all for you. 24. Offline. Last seen five hours ago. 2,580 feet away. Disillusioned. Online. I don't know what I'm doing here. Over the scene, over the hype, over the queens. Just make some dates. So I'm breaking free of the horse. I want to be a grind. Breaking Blank. Five Grab ten, the wall. Blank. Twelve stone. Bite the pillow. White. Blank. Average. Blank. Six foot two. Single. Blank. Dates and Eleven stone. White. Toned. Single. Right now. Just here for a nosy. Twenty-one. Online. Zero foot away. Taking a look around. Please be nice. Coffee is nice. Be like coffee. Not sure what I'm looking for. Six foot. Nine and a half stone. White. Twink. Single. Dates and chat. Hey. Hi. I'm Maddie. Hiya, Maddie. I'm Andrew. How's you? I'm grand, thanks. Yourself? Not good. Just out of work on my way home. Cool. Where do you work? Oh, just a pub like. Nothing special. Hey, any man who can mix a drink instantly comes up on my radar. <laughs> oh, really now? Well, maybe that could be arranged sometime. You're really cute. Oh, thanks, babe. Pretty fit yourself. So what do you do? I'm a performer. I do some makeup stuff too. So, like drag? Yeah. <laughs> I hope that's not weird. No, man, not at all. Stuff takes work. <laughs> Tell me about it. My feet are always killing me. So, what are you looking for on here? Dates and mates. How about you? Ah, uh, well, dates mostly. Been known to have a bit of fun every now and again. Nice. So, would this sit? Photo sent. Photo sent. Wow. Photo sent. You're fucking hot, mate. Thanks, man. Work hard enough for it. <laughs> I can tell. Any pics of you? Yeah, one sec. Photo sent. Photo sent. Photo sent. Seems you're pretty hot yourself. Thanks. Smiley face emoji. So can you come? Yeah. My housemate is constantly having people over without asking. I don't see why I can't do the same. Face with tongue sticking out emoji. Nice. Whereabouts? Location sent. I'm not too far. Sweet. Are you a top or a bottom? Bottom. You? Top. A strong one. Purple devil emoji. Well, Maddie, you're a hot dude. Would love to get to meet that ass in person. <laughs> well, my door's always open. Are you clean? Hello? I really hate when people say that. Why? I'm just asking if you're clean. Like, if you've got anything. Because it makes it sound like people who got anything are dirty. Oh, I guess, yeah. Sorry. Anyways, do you have anything? Yeah, actually I do. I'm positive. Oh. Sorry, mate, that's kind of a deal breaker. You're hot and all, but I don't want to get AIDS. Are you serious? Yeah. I don't want to catch anything. Don't want AIDS, like. Well, okay. I'm really sorry. Okay, bye then. 
Block Smiley. Okay, so hearing that, what does that throw up for you? Um, the change that happens when you disclose your status and um, how that how that can make the whole thing more than what someone can handle. And it's funny because I have very mixed feelings about this because honestly, before I was diagnosed, I would have been exactly the same. Um, it would have freaked me out. I probably wouldn't have gone with someone who was positive just because I didn't understand it. I didn't know about it. But you've been, you've been only 18 or 19 before being diagnosed, which is pretty young to have to handle that sort of thing. Yeah, well, it's... Well, if I look back, I think I'd be pretty quite embarrassed about it and how I would have handled it. But this guy, yeah, it's just this change of wanting to be with me to after the fact he wants nothing to do with me because of my status. I'm not a dirty person. And at that stage, when this conversation happens, it'll take a while to sort of pluck up the courage to be that open about it again and again and again and it's quite damaging to someone who's positive. It's not nice. But outside of grinder, if I knew someone who felt, if I knew someone who I felt I could open a conversation with had this kind of fear of being with someone who was open about their status, I would try to explain to them, like, it's not a disease that by, like, me talking to you or something is going to wipe you off the face of the earth, much less being with someone who's open about their status will put you at risk. The chances of contracting HIV from someone like me who knows they're undetectable and knows their status and health is minimal. I I make sure in how I handle myself in relationships on Grindr to be as safe as possible, not only for myself, but for other people. But right after diagnosis, I was like, oh, well, fuck this. The only people I can sleep with now are positive. And it took me getting more educated to know now that that isn't true at all. Once you'd gotten back on Grinder, were you in a place that you were ready to hook up or? I think, I think I tried to force myself into being ready, ready to try and feel normal again, but I was not ready. Like, absolutely not. Emotionally, I wasn't ready. I wasn't ready for the responsibility that that entailed then. And, um, you know, I wasn't ready for that rejection. What's, when... You got that sort of rejection, you'd apologize for being positive. At the time. But not now? Now, I would just say, if you don't like it, lump it. So many Asians. 21. Last seen 30 Nine. minutes ago. 26. Two miles away. Online. Not enough blocks. 500 feet away. Mates and dates. Not racist. It's just seven. a preference. Online. You all activist on me. 500 feet away. 10 stone. 5 foot 7. Who's about? Blank. Just out of range. White. Shit. 32. Slim. Serious. Online. Right 3,810 feet away. 5 feet Always hungry. 12 stone. 19. Hungry for Average. takeaway. Last seen two hours Single. ago. Cute boys. Dates and chat. 1,500 feet away. 5 foot 11. Just checking it out. stone. Max. Straight Stop. dude who is a little curious. Bangle. No fats, no camp, no blacks. Five foot eight, ten stone, white, toned, single, right now. Plus sign, 23, online, zero foot away. Get to know me. Just in case this goes any further, best to get this off my chest now. I'm HIV positive. This doesn't mean I'm dying. I hope you can see past this. I'm a nice guy, honest. Six foot, Ten stone, white, twink, single. Dates, chat, and right now. So you've got AIDS? Wow, okay. Um, no. Not at all, actually. I'm HIV positive. I don't have AIDS. But you will have AIDS. Not if all my meds continue to work like they have been the past few months. The meds work great now. But you can give other people AIDS. Look, I can't tell if you're ignorant and are looking for answers or just rude and mean. No. I can't give people AIDS. That's not how it works. Through unprotected sex, there is a risk for HIV transmission. But as soon as I'm undetectable, that won't be a risk at all. But I wouldn't bear back anyways because I couldn't live with putting someone else at risk. But if you got like a flu, you'd die, right? No. Why did you bear back in the first place to get AIDS and now you're all against it? Seems hypocritical to me. 
All right, you're just an asshole. Everyone makes mistakes, and I don't need some hate-driven dickbag to point that out to me. Bye. Well, maybe your meds will stop working and the world will be rid of you. Good you got it. Body blocks by Curious. Okay, we're recording again. What's happening for you now? This hurts. This opinion hurts. The fact that, you know, he's not really using this as a learning experience. He is literally just there to be a dick. It's really painful. And it's difficult to see past ignorance whenever it's just that sort of, when it feels like an attack. So it's difficult to think, oh, it's not his fault that he doesn't know anything about HIV. He hasn't got the education. When this guy and others like him present themselves in that way, just to hurt me, just to say their piece. But there, there's an age thing for me as well. If it's someone young, then I'd be a lot more forgiven because someone older has had to see and talk to more people and has had the time, especially on the gay scene, to interact with positive people. Whereas with young people, it's new and shocking. As I said before about how I would have been, how, before I, how I would have been before getting diagnosed, you don't know a whole lot when you're 19 or 20 or even in your mid-20s. But with this guy, this is just here to hurt me. This isn't what real ignorance looks like. It's just an attack, just to be nasty. And I don't have time for it. And the bit about being hypocritically barebacking, I've even heard that before, and it makes no sense. It, it makes diagnosis like... Like nothing. It makes it seem like we don't change as people when things happen in our lives. I don't know if that because we're positive, so it doesn't matter how we feel, or if it's because someone in that scene doesn't really care. I'm not sure. But it doesn't make sense. And it really goes back to that question of, how did you get it? You know, that's the big thing that everyone's interested in finding out. But it's really just nosy. And none of anyone's damn business. However, me being the person I am, I talk about my story all the time. But that is my choice. And I have the right to bring it up and shape it how I want. I don't respond to people who think they get to drive my experience or dig into the quote unquote, juicy bits of my life. But there's people you just automatically judge you. Like, oh, well, he's HIV positive. He must have been out sleeping about like a slut. You know, ass in the air for any Tom, Dick or Harry. And as soon as people have that sort of image of you, you know, that's that's how you get HIV here. You get this scene queen story grafted onto you like it's the only way you can get HIV in Northern Ireland. So it's more often than not a sex thing but because of your community or how you look certain backstories get pasted onto you and that's really hard to fight with a gay man it's the slut thing and the idea that they must still be a slut so I can say whatever I want to them and that's where guys like this one come from all the while being on a gay sex app so the irony's totally lost on them what are the long term effects of conversations like this? Quick ones like this, while they're painful, I'm at a point today where this will grab me for about maybe half an hour. I'll come off Grinder and post on Facebook about it, typically with screen grabs. Have a good laugh once I'm over it and go about my day. It's not nothing, but it's not as bad at all as it used to be, or as bad as some people can get. Night Owl Purdue, 24. Last seen five hours ago. Online. 35 three miles away. Mates. Happily partnered for four years. Love coffee, drinks, and Indian food. Looking for mates. Six foot one inch. On eleven stone. White. Toned. Partnered. Blank friends. And white. Eleven toned. Single. Dates and channels. Read my bio. Single. Offline. Three thousand five hundred ninety feet away. Blank. 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 Blank, blank, blank. Pause, 25, online, zero foot away. Don't like it, lump it. I'm HIV positive. If you don't like it, you're lost. Six foot, ten stone, white, twink, single, dates and right now. Is this Matthew Cavan? Yes. Who's this? Never you mind. You're a fucking vile, dirty cunt. You deserve everything you get. I hope you die of AIDS. I hope this world never has to see your dying face ever again. Oh, wow. Well, aren't you just a delight? Sorry to disappoint, 
but I won't be dying anytime soon. Because of the meds I'm on, it means I'm very healthy and I'll probably outlive you. Just remember, you're the coward hiding behind a faceless blank profile. Well, maybe you should go and kill yourself then. Do your family and friends a favour? Ha ha, and I will happily dance on your grave. I just wish you and every other diseased cunt would be put down like the dogs you are. Have I ever done anything to you that would warrant this? Go and die. I already said that won't be happening. Are you proud of your status? Is that why you went on UTV and the BBC? To tell the world how proud you are of being a filthy cunt? If I found out I was HIV positive, I'd do the world a favour and just kill myself. You should do that. I went on the BBC and UTV to tell people they aren't alone. That they don't deserve to die. And that they deserve to be happy and can be healthy like everyone else. That people like you can't take that away from them. You deserve to be eradicated from this planted. Planted? Good one, mate. Oh, fuck off and die of AIDS. Lol. Heard that all before. And I'm still here. Let's see how funny you find it if I get you before the AIDS does. Muddy blocks read my bio. So, I'm sure that that's not easy to hear. No, definitely not. What was your reaction when this happened originally? So, this one would have been the first one I would have gone to Facebook about. This is where I went public with the hate that was happening. And the amount, when I posted this, the amount of overwhelming support in my favour happened. Which then I found even more difficult because I was going, I have all these people that love me and think that what I'm doing is an amazing thing. But yet I was so deeply affected by this and I couldn't see the positive because of one person and what they'd said to me. And it's the fact that one person would have that amount of hatred to say those things to another human being, regardless of it being me. It was that that really... I couldn't understand how someone could hate me that much to say those things. That I found really difficult. And this took me a long time to get over. Like a week or so to really bounce back and be happy. Like, uh, Do you regret going on the UTV or the BBC? No. I, no. Then, in the aftermath of that, 100% absolutely. I couldn't see any of the positives even though if I went into my Facebook messages and I had hundreds of messages saying that they loved what I did and one of the main reasons I do do this is because of other people living with HIV because they a lot of people don't have the support I have but um, I couldn't even see how important that was it was just like how could I do this how could I let myself be open to this because that was rough were you performing in drag a lot at that time? Yeah. Drag definitely helped me escape because being Cherry is not being Maddie. You know, Cherry's not HIV positive. Her body is, but she isn't. Whereas I am. Being Cherry was an escape from that because I didn't have to think about that. I wouldn't have to talk about it when I'm her. Except now I'm in a place where I've started to use Cherry as a platform to discuss it because... It's a good platform to use. But it was very different at the time of all that. Cherry definitely helped me through that time. Which is why drag is such a good and important thing to me. Because it blocked out a lot of pain for me. I could just not be me for a while. Did you have a performance soon after that had happened? Yeah. I would have had it within the week. That Wednesday in Maverick or the Sunday in Cabaret. I do remember after it looking at everyone that came into Maverick in a different light because I went I think this person knows me this person could be anyone who walks into this bar whereas I didn't really feel that in Cabaret I then I didn't know who I could trust did you ever try to make a secondary profile and figure out who it was a few of my friends did but I didn't it's kind of impossible because the ones that are really hate-filled are always blank, faceless profiles and there are a lot of those on Grinder, And they always block me or I block them so it's always hard to find them again to do anything about it. And I thought I'd seen the worst of humanity at that point so my trust in people in general was shaken. So the damage was done, really. Even if someone has all their details and a photo up there, you stop and you think... 
this person could turn out to be a horrible cunt. It's not nice. It's not a nice feeling to have that about people. I hate feeling that way about people, but it's now so ingrained in me that humans aren't really nice creatures, and I find that very difficult, even now. Lost. Twenty-eight. Bear emoji. Online. Pizza emoji. Thirty-two. One mile away. Online. Cuddles, teddy bear emoji. 26, online, zero foot away. Lonely bedtimes. Snow is falling all around us. Looking for a big spoon to keep me warm. Six foot, ten stone, white, slim, single, dates, friends, and right now. Your meds stopped working yet? Judgmental. Why? It's not. Just a question. Nope, I am perfectly healthy. Thanks for asking. Won't be for long. What the fuck does that mean? You're Matthew Cavan, right? Lol, it doesn't scare me that you know my name. I've been featured nationwide. It doesn't take more than a Google search. Yeah. I know you've shown your ugly diseased face all over the fucking BBC. Showing up on World AIDS Day. The day we all pretend to care about you filthy cunts who all got what you deserve and those stupid African babies who can't even get water. Wow, you're a dick. I'm just going to block you. There's no fixing hatred. Bye. You work at the Mac counter of Victoria Square and do nine to four shifts every Monday, Tuesday and Thursday. You leave and take the 7A bus. You live at 2004 Hillman Street in Flat 3. You only go out on Thursdays and Saturdays. You do that awful ugly drag on Fridays and Sundays at that really shit cabaret bar near City Hall. How the fuck do you know that? Because I watch you. Because if the AIDS doesn't get you, I'm going to do society a favour and wipe you off the face of the earth. I'm going to put on my work boots, two pairs of gloves and break in on those Monday nights you sit at home alone watching RTE and dance on your chest till it caves in. Then stomp on your face till I break that disgusting face of yours. I'll have to wear a fucking hazmat suit though because I don't want to get your filthy fucking AIDS. I'm contacting the police. I've screenshotted everything you've sent. Ha ha, don't bother. They're not going to help a dirty disease faggot like you. You're dying anyway. I have healthy people to worry about. Too bad I'm not going to be able to cover my boots though. I'll just have to burn them after. You're a sick fuck. I'm on the phone with police. They will find you. Ha ha. Just try. I'd get away with it anyway. Then, when the fucking state has to bury you, because I know no one is going to come in and claim your filthy AIDS-riddled body, I'll piss and happily dance on your grave. I've screenshotted everything. I'm blocking you now. You're not getting away with this shit. You'll be dead. Soon. So first responses. This absolutely terrified me. To the point that I did contact the police, but I also couldn't stay in my house because I was terrified. The police came around and they took the screen grabs and they said that they had to contact Grinder and it's so difficult because it's an American company and it's difficult to get them open up to these sort of things and I never I never heard back from them. So I just stayed with some friends for a while. Like it was horrible. I was constantly looking over my shoulder, around town, in work, in both my jobs, actually. This ruined the cabaret club for me as well, because they knew that I worked there. Also, I wasn't very well at this stage. I'd just got out of hospital, so I was feeling quite... What's the word? Vulnerable, anyway. What, was there any anything specific in all of what that person said that made you question yourself, like... That you got to a point where you agreed with them on some level. Yeah, well, it's the same with any of them, actually. There's always a moment that you go, God, he's right, you know. I am worthless, why am I here? I literally just burden people with this shit. And you have these really rough moments, and that's 
definitely a thing that happens. You know how a lot of people say that the victims of rape go through this moment of saying, this is my fault, this, I did this. I, even in my strongest days, I still go, I kind of deserve it. I had that night in the sauna and only I hadn't, this wouldn't be happening. If I hadn't been such a slut at that time, you know, I wouldn't have this and I wouldn't be dealing with this and my family wouldn't be dealing with this and my friends and maybe I'd have a boyfriend because actually I am, you know, like like a good looking um, person. <laughs> you are. You said that very timidly, which is very out of character. I'm really hot. <laughs> and I have a lot to give as a person, but they're just feeling like I did this to me. Like there's no one else to blame. I walked to that sauna I paid money into that sauna. I was the one having sex in that sauna. But what you realise over time is that that doesn't matter. No one deserves to get HIV. People don't deserve things like this. Rape's not a bad person thing. Cancer, death, all of those things. It doesn't matter who you are and what you've done in this life. Anyone could be affected by this. And you've had multiple interactions with this person. Well, I say person because you have a theory that... It's the same person. Yeah. I'll never know. You know, I won't ever know unless this person came up to me and said, yeah, that person who sent you all that nasty stuff, yeah, that was me. I'm going to dance in your face. But with the style of writing and the way the profiles come up, yeah, I think it's the same person. But you never really know these things in life. Would you, what would you say if that person came up to you today and said, yeah, it's me? I would phone the police. They've said too much. And maybe someday I could find it in myself to forgive them because I don't think harboring hate is a good thing. But I hate this person. And I also hate the fact that he's made me hate him because I hate hating. <laughs> Which is a very, very... Irish thing but it's it's not a feeling I can't imagine why anyone would like that feeling I wouldn't give them the time of day you don't make me feel like that you don't make me question my family's love for me you don't make me question my friend's love for me you don't make me question my love for me so I have no time for this person I have no time if this person heard this conversation like if this person was one on one of the glory walks or actually heard their words being focalised by all these people for this piece, I would hope that they would see that this hurts. Switching gears a bit, what are your hopes for being on Grinder in the future? To not be on Grinder in the future. Um, um, I would love to find someone who loves me for me and then I can come off it. But a big reason I'm on Grinder is to make a point, to make a point that people can't hold me back. You know, when I post to Facebook about this, the stuff that happens on there, people say all oh, this, oh, just come off it. You're worth so much more than that. But why? I have as much right to be on there as the next person. And I may be a bit of a glutton for punishment, but I'll be damned if I'm going to come off it because someone said something nasty to me. Because then they win. But yes, ideally... I would find a guy and be able to have a relationship, feel loved and love that person and eventually move in together and get married because that's the kind of soppy bastard that I am. Well, cool. Great. Thanks. Uh, thanks for your time. If anyone's doing the tour or hears this later, come and find me. <laughs> Declan, 26. Bent. On land. 23 mile away. Pseudo-Pseudo-Pseudo-Pseudo-Pseudo-Pseudo-Pseudo-Pseudo-Pseudo-Pseudo-Pseudo-Pseudo-Pseudo-Pseudo-Pseudo-Pseudo-Pseud
Maddie, 27, online, zero foot. I'm good, crack. Just going to put this here. I'm HIV positive, so if you feel pity or feel grossed out at that, then you need to educate yourself. That said, I'm here to enjoy myself in whatever form that takes. Mates, dates, fun, or all of the above. Lol. Please be good, crack. Six foot, ten stone, white, toned, single, chat, dates, friends, right now, and relationships. Hey, are you the guy who gave blood for the drag queen crown thing? Yes, I am. I'm so proud of Electra and the awareness she's raising. That was awesome. And I love Electra. I just couldn't remember her name. Guess I'm a bit of a bad gay. You're not bad at all. Trust me. <laughs> Thanks. I do have to say, though, when I was reading about it in the post, I was not expecting the donor to be so cute. <laughs> what were you expecting? I don't know. But you're a pleasant surprise. Winking smiley face emoji. Ah, oh, well. Thanks, mate. And you're pretty cute yourself. Blushing smiley face emoji. I'm Owen. I'm Maddie. It's nice to meet you, Maddie. So, what are you looking for on here? A uh, little unsure at the moment, but I mean, dates are always nice. Yeah, they are. I'm partial to a coffee date myself. Bit of a coffee freak. <laughs> Me too. I try to make caffeinated shaking look chic. I'm sure you do. So, um... Would you want to go on a date sometime? Yeah, I'd like that. And obviously you know I'm positive. Yep. No problem there? Haha, <laughs> none at all. A bit of sense, a condom and a prayer and we're good to go. Why a prayer? Oh, lol. It's something my mum used to say. Your mum used to say a condom and a prayer. She did actually, haha. <laughs> <laughs> well, your mum sounds awesome. She was. Miss her every day. I know she would have loved what you and Electra did too. It was really cool. Well, I've got to get some work done. But let me give you my number and we'll get that coffee date together soon, cool? Absolutely. Number sent. I shall await your text. Have a good day, Matty. I will. Smiley face. That was Hi, I'm Matty, or him. If you want to follow the work of Matthew Cavan, you can follow him on Twitter at Mattitude89, and if you want to follow Smash Cut, there's Smash Cut Cast on Twitter and Patreon. And they're about to start a new campaign on Kickstarter. I'll put that link in the show notes. So I talked to Alexander about some of the other work Smash Cut has done. We're going to discuss a lot about the piece you just heard in this interview, but if you want to stop the podcast here and subscribe to Smash Cut to do a little pre-listening, check out their piece Marksman. That comes up in here, too. I can wait. I won't be offended. Go ahead, listen to the whole backlog. Okay, now, if you're ready, let's take a listen to my conversation with Xander. Alexander, welcome to Radio Drama Revival. Uh, thanks for having me. Thank you for coming on the show. I want to start by talking about the Ryan White Care Act um, and what I perceive to be the origins of Smash Cut. Is that... Is that where I know I, I figure that's where Marksman began. Mm -hmm. Is that where the podcast began? Uh, the podcast began in the middle of a cinema language and aesthetics course. We were watching a film and I don't remember the name of it, but I remember it having really, really sexist undertones. And I just got really angry. So I, I disassociated from the lecture and was just thinking about things that I had read earlier in that day. And there was something from Lambda Legal. Um, that was like the Ryan Wright, the the Ryan White Care Act. It wasn't necessarily up for like total renewal, but like the funds that get allocated to it have to be reapproved um, as a part of a larger budget and all of that. And so, with the way that our our um, political tides were shifting at the time, there were people talking on the internet about there there may be funds pulled out of it, and that kids living with HIV would not be able to get the same kind of health care or they would have to restructure how it worked. Um, it was just like pulling from the top of my head and it sat on me through that through that lecture and I just started writing down how I felt about it and how I would feel if I was that kid, mm -hmm. um, even with the amazing, wonderful parents that I have that are beyond accepting, um, how difficult that would be. And also, about two days before that, I had my first interaction with radio drama ever, which was listening to That's Democracy on the Truth. Sure. And so I was like, okay, okay. it's all coming together Yeah, now. I was sure. like, school, kids, HIV, guns? Yeah, that's going to be, that makes sense. We should write a script about it. And so 
and we is me, uh, <laughs> we we is one person um, at this point. Um, <clears throat> so I'm writing from the perspective of four different characters because I was like arbitrarily picking like I should probably have two men and two women and we should just like split this up and and figure out how this goes. Then one of those characters later became a woman. Uh, but long story short, I couldn't finish the script. I was just like, I don't know how to get Elizabeth, the the lead character in Marksman, to come to a point of wanting to reveal what actually happened to the kid. Um, and so I turned to my then new friend, Mallory O'Segan, who's an AP on the project now and writes for us all the time. How would you do this? What? How, how do you feel about this thing? And so she takes it and she's like, I don't know. I, I, I'll look at it eventually. And then the following day, I get a completed script. Um, How did you and Mallory and Caitlin meet one another? um, So Mallory and I worked on a a very interesting play called Dionysus of the Holocaust here at LSU. um, That was um, very, very large and difficult. And it was a very intense process. And one of the rehearsals was particularly difficult. And I had to step out of the room. And uh, I didn't really feel like super supported that day. By, by anyone, really, other than our stage manager, God bless her. And Mallory was another performer, and she walked out of the room with me and talked to me. Uh, and that was the beginning of our friendship. And then a year later, I came up with Marksman. We started uh, shooting things back and forth at each other, and she would come over to my apartment, and we would write for about two hours and just random things, and those would become scripts. Now, the way that Caitlin came into the project was Mallory and I are on opposing ends of the political spectrum. Yeah, I read in the LSU student paper that she's a pretty conservative Christian. Yes, and like she she is like the most loving and empathetic person and has woken me up to a lot of my bullshit um, that I absolutely needed. But there were times that we needed mediation, not necessarily interpersonally because we were always great friends. Um, but artistically to go like, okay, this point needs to move here, in my opinion. She'd be like, well, no, that point has these political ramifications, and I don't agree with that, and my name, like, my name and what I stand for can't be stretched or bent this way in order to fit this this thing that you want to do. Um, so we go back and forth, and Caitlin would come in, and we would get a bottle of wine, and she'd be like, look, this is what I think needs to happen. And this is how we continue to make work. If anyone disagrees, I'll be seeing myself out. Thank you. <laughs> and we, like, without her guidance, I, I don't know if, like, half of the work we, we made would have made it out because it would have it would have died in the room. And so she was kind of the midwife for Mallory and I, which was excellent. Or doula. Doulas are a big thing now. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah. Uh, I want to talk about the piece, Hi, I'm Maddie, or H-I-M. Yeah, so I connected over the internet to a director who was going to be working on a piece in uh, in Belfast on HIV. And me as a junior in university, being like trying to narrow down what it is in performance that I was thinking about critically, uh, HIV was what I was very much interested in. And so I was like, yeah, totally, I'll show up and I will work on that thing. Um, and that turned into moving there for half the year. So I posted through our website, we're going to be making four pieces of audio drama while in Ireland. Oh, yeah, we're going to Ireland. It was like the number four was arbitrary. Me going to Ireland totally piggybacked off of like other work that I was doing. And I just kind of kind of popped the podcast in my pocket and got on a plane essentially is what happened. Uh, and while there, I ran into artists who were doing things um, that I found to be absolutely brilliant. And I would just ask, hey, I'm working on this sonic art thing. Um, here's an example of our work. I'd love to do something with you. And I definitely got a lot of no's being that people are way too busy trying to make other things happen that do pay. But I, I got four yeses. How did you first meet Matthew Cavan? So Matthew Cavan uh, was a key performer and also just thinker on a project called Glory, which was um, the piece I was originally there to to be a part of, which was directed by Alison Campbell. And it was circling around living with HIV in Northern Ireland. And Matthew Cavan, uh, Maddie, 
was one of the first people, if not the first person, to go on uh, BBC Northern Ireland and say, Hi, my name's Matthew. I have HIV. I'm fine. Also, I'm fabulous. Thanks. Have a great day. <laughs> um, just in summation. And, and definitely... Definitely, a, like, tries every day as much as he can to, to live his life that way. And it's extremely valiant and, like, heartwarming to watch. Um, but there are parts of his story that, like, were deeply, deeply saddening because of the responses and the, the, the very violent retaliation he got to doing that segment on the BBC. And so for Glory, it was uh, it was a much larger scope just trying to figure out, like, how, how does one live positively – um, in Northern Ireland after going through the Troubles um, during a point where the NHS is not necessarily in a free fall, but there, there are parts of it that are really dying. And also the kind of lack of specialized care in Northern Ireland in general, um, that's in the social sector where people can't get uh, support for having different kinds of chronic illnesses. As of right now, there are, I think, three support organizations. One of them is physical, one's on the internet, and the other one uh, I never really get to interact with much. But there are only three organizations that I could find that were specific to Northern Ireland that help people living with HIV just kind of talk about their experiences. And so Glory was very much trying to just to start those conversations. It was very much defining what what the conversation should be around and just that it existed. And while it seems really small or, or simple that like for that area and the amount of work that we were doing and the people that we interviewed, that was like crucial, which was really amazing to see. And for Maddie, there was a part of his story that didn't make it into um, the electronic installations that were part of Glory because it was a public performance installation. And there were bits of it that were recorded um, at the Sonic Arts Research Center in Belfast uh, that then were played out either through headphones on a on a tour or just out loud through speakers. Uh, but a part of Matthew's story was only used in a live performance that was at the end of the installation uh, that was framed after a tea dance, an English tea dance. And we called it the tea cell dance. It was it was lots of fun. It was great because Matthew has the like the craziest and most amazing and I'm I'm having his permission here to say AIDS jokes oh, that come directly from him that are the most uplifting and terrifying things that you've ever heard. And so it was just kind of a night of that, um, which is fabulous. But I wanted to capture that story in a way and try and work under this this system that Allison uh, was trying to develop called viral dramaturgies, just kind of like throwing those two words together and, and, and seeing what that means, what that throws up. And so I tried to apply that system that she was defining with Glory um, to making a, a fully electronic piece set inside of an app, an electronic thing about Matthew. Uh, and it was extremely difficult and really, really rewarding for both uh, Matthew and I, because I remember he messaged me after after I'd released it. I was in the States at this point, and I just started crying with the stuff that he was sending back to me. And it was it was it was really emotional and wonderful. It 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 just watching him. It was it was so odd because we would we would interview him and he would tell us these things that that happened to him that were extremely personal. Um, but he was so willing to give us to work with and, and to give Allison and uh, the writer, uh, Lachlan Philpot, who was there for the project. And and I was just th- there as an intern just to kind of watch. He, like, it was it was astounding. And then as soon as the interview's over, he's like, oh, I got to go paint myself. Bye. Like, just <laughs> <laughs> and he would like run, like just run around Belfast like a chicken with its head cut off. And working nonstop, making people laugh. Like, I would go every weekend to karaoke. Uh, and his um, his drag name is Cherry on Top, so it's Cherokee. Um, where he would he would uh, sing these like incredibly difficult songs as a drag queen in like the tightest corset ever. And Matthew is already like this this like wonderful luscious person, and just drag on top of that was was insane and wonderful to watch so it was it was so crazy looking at this person and like 
looking at Maddie, you would never know that that was going on under the surface, this kind of tension that that the whole piece really operated on, that every single person who we interviewed living with HIV, who had fear of disclosure, fear of fear of being uh, cast out uh, by their entire community, by their family, having their kids taken away potentially, like these really terrifying things happening in their lives. These people, these people very much have to bifurcate themselves in order to survive. And it's, it's, it's odd to say that it's, it's amazing to watch, but it's those people deserve so much honor and love and praise for how much they've had to go through. And in the exact same breath, it is, horribly sickening that we as a society have put that on them it's it's absolutely disgusting the these people have to live in a way that we we asked queer people or specifically gay people to live in america in the 20s living the the quote double life having having this this the second persona that people definitely still live and it's something that still exists in like the um the dl culture of of like black americans or black male americans um so we're seeing this this blame shift from different factions of the queer community um just in 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 america um from what was white gay men uh, who were upper class and owned property and were married um and then it's like slowly going and as the like the hegemonic view of queerness would go down the totem pole to then be people who are bisexual or people who were women <laughs> who liked other women and then by women and then you throw in race like that hasn't been a thing forever it's like it's like the system is constantly shocked that people exist <laughs> but this this blame is being shifted from group to group to group to group and the the aids crisis and just the the I, I don't want to say the advent of HIV, but uh, just its its emergence into the world really interrupted that totem pole and put hooks in everything, everywhere. And it, it was very odd being in Northern Ireland where it, they did have socialized medicine. People wanted to – people did vote to stay in the European Union uh like there there was there's all this social justice work that didn't necessarily need to be done just because of how the society chose to operate which also made it hard for like me as an american at any point to go well that's problematic in this way and then somebody would go your country is about to go up in flames um so watch what fingers you point uh-huh it was yeah it was always very difficult um to try and like have conversations especially around race in Ireland because there there weren't enough examples to pull from for a lot of these people's lives to think critically about race. Whereas like being from the South, I felt like, oh yeah, I have a lot of latent racism I have to work through. And this is something that I'm interacting with every day. And I like, I really need to recognize how much privilege I have. And then you go to a country where like just the population isn't there in a lot of ways, like there, there are people of color in Ireland. Definitely not saying that, but the, the how the populations function and also how they are so dispersed. That like, I didn't know how to have a critical conversation about race where I could pull examples from people's lives because I was like, I know nothing of these social structures. So I was much more familiar with the phenomenon of racism uh, in the American grinder user base, though I still don't know a ton about it. I was wondering if you could tell me what you had seen on the app. And specifically, what's the most horrific shit that's ever befallen you on Grindr? If you're comfortable I, revealing I that. am totally fine. Oh, my God. Let's dish. So, <laughs> no. So, it's just, it's very anti-black and it's very anti-Asian. It's like this constant no blacks, no femmes, um, no trans thing no asians uh there are a couple documentaries that are currently being made by a lot uh, very amazing queer artists about how damaging grinder is but yet how compulsory it feels especially in the south to be a part of it because it is so rural even with the cities that we have and our kind of lack of social mobility in a way um that then that then affects our our physical mobility and not necessarily 
me separated from queer people, but like queer people who are people of color or queer people who are um, differently abled. And then also like people who are positive. So there's also no positive people um, or people like, I don't care if you're undetectable. Don't talk to me. Um, the most terrifying thing that happened to me on Grinder was while I was in Belfast, it was two days before I was supposed to leave. Um, Hi, I'm Maddie was about a guy who was stalking Matthew Cavan after he went on BBC and I. Uh, to announce his his positive, fabulous life. And I do not know if this is the same person who contacted him. I It's probably not, but it is probably somebody who heard about Glory and knew who I was and who knew who Maddie was who messaged me. Um, and I put screenshots of it up on Facebook because that's what Maddie did whenever all of this happened to him. And I sent them to him. And he was like, you know what I do? So, <laughs> so I did the same thing. Um, somebody hit me up. Uh, just said, hi, I'm horny. And I was like, okay, cool. This is like, this is how this conversation goes. It's hi, hi, what's up? Nothing much. I'm jerking off. Whatever. Um, just how these things play out. And it's like, oh, do you have a face picture? And I'm like, my face picture's on my profile. Do you have a face picture? And they go, show me your dick. And I said, um, I don't know any, like, I do not know what you look like. I don't know where you are. I'm not going to do that. And uh, then the he just switched conversations to I know you're in QUB a lot, like and uh, QUB is Queens University Belfast. I was not a student. What the fuck? While I was there, but I was constantly going into the student union because they had internet access that I was able to get on for free, and there was a really nice coffee shop there, and I made friends with the university students, so I'd run into them. Anyway, so they knew that I was there a lot, and then told me that I was targeted. Like, just put that word in a separate message, targeted. Um, I sent, uh, what the fuck? What does that mean? And they just sent back, oh, you'll see. And the only thing that stopped me from really freaking out was that, A, I had Maddie to talk to. And then, B, I was leaving the country in two days. So right. I was just like, I, I didn't know what that meant. I didn't know if it was going to be like... How to Get Away with Murder Season 3, where my face is going to be printed on a thing and circled and put, like, faggot under it. Like, I don't know. Like, I didn't know, like, what this, like, target thing was. If it was going to be something as frivolous as that or if somebody, like, knew where my flat was. That sounds fucking horrifying. Yeah. And so that's terrifying. And then lower level stuff is uh, me, like, sending a shirtless picture of myself and I am not toned. I'm not skinny. I've gone in between weights of 230 to 35 pounds down to 135 pounds, sitting around 160 now, constantly having issues with how I look at my body, which is a whole other thing with gay men. But anyway, I don't fit those molds that you that you expect on Grinder, And so I will share a shirtless picture and I'll just get called fat or ugly or fugly or um, just get blocked a whole hell of a lot. Or then asked if I'm mask, which is short for masculine. And I like, I just don't, I don't have a response. I'm just like, no, yes, no, no, yes. Uh, Sometimes, like if you slap me, I guess, like I don't really, like I don't monitor my masculinity. But uh, yeah, it's low level stuff like that. That's just this kind of constant negative thing around me. Um, to which my friends will respond, well, why don't you just get off Grinder?" And before, I never had a response to that other than, well, I have a dick and I like it to touch things. Like, <laughs> which is a horrible answer, but I mean, like, it's honest. And now I'm equipped with Maddie's, Maddie's language of I have the right to be here as much as those assholes do. Sure. So a lot of your pieces like Digital Kissing Booth and Hi, I'm Maddie, tread this line between documentary and fiction. The Digital Kissing Booth pieces both feel like documentary recordings, but they were both improvised by actors. Mm-hmm. Hi, I'm Maddie uses verbatim text from Maddie's grinder chat logs, but it's performed by actors. Um, tell me about and the, the WMXN piece is made up of documentary footage that you recorded at the Women's March, but it's presented in a fictional frame. Mm-hmm. Tell me about the tension you see between documentary and fiction and how you make works from real-world text. It's a way of curbing my millennial gig mentality of wanting to do 20 million things Mm -hmm. that I cannot do 
or at least not with the information and education that I have right now. I probably have the mental capacity to do some of those things to a certain extent. Um, but the drive isn't there to do them. Um, but the drive, is, the drive is there to make theater <laughs> and to make some kind of art. Like with Hiya Maddie, like building some sort of like really cool app that's used all over the world to be super dope. But like I can't do that either. It's it's really about being able to go ahead and say, like, I love this thing. I think it's really cool. It'd be dope if I could do it, but I can't. So how can we? Um, And that's kind of it. Like, I love The Heart. The Heart is an amazing, beautiful show. Um, And with Digital Kissing Booth, like, I, I had heard a couple of pieces by The Heart. And I was like, oh, my God, I'd, I'd love to talk more about sex and relationships and all this other stuff and find those kinds of stories. But... I don't know a whole lot of people who are willing to open up about that kind of thing. And I can't like hop in my car and go to New Orleans every other day and scout for stories about sex. Um, and so Lainey was warming up for recording Marksman, actually, a super dark, dark piece. Um, and she told me the story of her first really good kiss. And so I was like, oh, my God, that is totally a thing that like a, a show like The Heart would do. It's it's not a conversation about first kisses. It, it, it's like. It's a conversation about when a woman was satisfied genuinely and also it being a new experience. So it's a different kind of conversation. Oh, my God, that's totally something that these people, these women that I absolutely adore would do. So we did it. <laughs> um, so we kind of just like pull from people that we like and, and change the conversation a bit. Um, and that has manifested in pulling people's real life stories and creating work, which is something that we highlighted in uh, the piece Chemical X, which we ended our, our first season with which is just saying we make stories based on either observed experiences where we don't interact with anything or a fully lived experience where I whipped out my phone or my Zoom if I had it on me and had a conversation with somebody or an interview with someone, a recounted experience, and we just pull that verbatim text and try and make either a piece that includes that text or that original recording or maybe it's just a script based on that. Uh, which is what uh, the next two shows that we're doing on Smash Cut are about that are written by Mallory, which are experiences that she had and creating a whole fictional script. So, yeah, it's it's just whatever, kind of, which <laughs> makes us extremely difficult to market, as Lainey will always tell me. So, Alexander, to take us home, I want to talk about your drag persona, whose full name I cannot say. Um, what can you tell me about Anne? Uh, Faggity Anne is an idea that I had with my mom in the car <laughs> because she didn't like the name that I came up with in the first place, which was Caught in a Net. She thought that that was very basic. And also, I like I had never done anything with Caught in a Net. And I also kind of haven't done anything with Faggity Ann either. Uh, there was a period where I was able to play a lot with drag and I was doing a lot more performance um, and the, the shows that I was in called for me to do some crazy makeup. And I was like, why don't I do it? Not as Alexander as this role, but Faggity Ann as this role. And also a friend of mine who's about to start law school. We were planning on writing a, writing a two queer show called, uh, Faggity Ann and Miss Andre Presents. Um, and we were just going to talk about social issues, but we never got around to doing it because now she's starting law school. So, but yeah, like... Anna's just something that I uh, that was really funny that I came up with in the car, and I am a, still a dramaturg at heart, and so I wrote out a ton of stuff for her, and I created a space for her on my personal slash professional website, and put up pictures, and also did some stuff in Belfast, in drag a bit, not a whole lot. She's never performed in a bar. She's walked around in an art gallery before. Um, she's sang. And that that's kind of about it. But she's always there if I if I want to start going into that. And she's bound to have a piece on the podcast eventually. But I want to save that for when I know it'll be good. Sure. I guess I guess I just wanted to 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 bring Anne into the conversation because I wanted to talk about how you conceive of the the purpose of drag. Yeah. Um, so I think that as gay people were given or specifically gay men. Um, are given a lot of a lot of little tools that go into a lot of very different kinds of boxes and we're definitely we're definitely taught to think that they are tools and there are boxes because we are men huh 
um, and to v- categorize the world in this way. And so even if one of us makes something, um, it's still going to have all of that kind of stuff that we were that we were given. And that's not specific to gay men, but definitely how we view it um, and how we kind of regurgitate it on one another. Because um, Grindr was made by a gay man and Grindr is extremely toxic whenever it comes to the multiplicities of identity politics, which is being led by queer people of color. <laughs> like, so it's a, it's a, it's a little ridiculous. Um, so we, we kind of, we kind of spit all this stuff back up on one another, even as we forge ahead and fight for rights and fight to be seen and fight to have space. I think what drag does is it's a different kind of vomit in this regurgitation <laughs> metaphor. Drag drag is a very, very personal and very stylized way of taking everything that's hurt you and showing it to other people and not hurting them in the process. To me, drag is the best kind of parenting style. <gasps> it's... It's the vomit of a mother bird. Oh, Jesus. Here we go. To a flock of baby gays. That works. I'll take it. I will take it. <laughs> but like, and you'll also see it in how like people have drag mothers and all this other stuff and how the drag world is extremely dangerous. And it's up to what kind of drag mother you have that'll take you away from the cocaine and the heroin and the sling um, in the back of the room. So, yeah, to me... On stage, in performance, drag drag is a stylized kind of parenting that changes the tools enough that that person had been given in the boxes that they were put into um, and kind of says to their flock, to, to their, their converted, as um, Tim Miller would put it, in a way that's non-threatening. It's, ne- it's never fire and brimstone. Now, I will say, as wonderful as that sounds the capitalist structure of America and also how how we pay and don't pay artists and how you have to market yourself and how well you have to put yourself forward, even as dangerous as drag was and is in certain spaces and even trans performance separated from drag is dangerous and was dangerous. The need to be kind of marketable, even if you're being politically incorrect, the need to Put yourself out and be able to rip out tips if you're in America or if you're in Europe where you're not allowed to tip a drag queen. That's very insulting. I learned that very fast. That was a fun night. Um, you have to get booked and, and licensed by this this bar and to, to hop around to get to get money and to, to, to get coin. So it as wonderful and as as like eloquent as I'm trying to put it its motivations to be so are still kind of dark. I see. Um, Not to be totally circular, that is also still another exercise of drag. Instead of, I don't want to be basic and say drama instead of trauma, but I feel like that's really true Mm. for drag queens. (laughs) It's taking trauma and making it drama is, uh, is what's happening. Even in those negative, those, those dark kind of uh, things that, that, that fuel drag to be, this kind of positive and uh, flashy experience. Alexander, thank you so much for coming on Radio Drama Revival. This was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much. This is this has been wonderful. <laughs> hey, Alexander, thank you for putting up with my questions. I've been finding myself lately amid milieus I haven't really been part of historically, and I'm so grateful for the way my interview guests have been so so gracious and patient with me. I hope you're learning along with me, friends, or hearing yourselves reflected in these works. Uh, Again, showcasing the diversity and vitality of this medium is the reason for this podcast's very existence. So, Smash Cut Cast. Subscribe to their feed, follow them on social media, give them your hot dollars so they can make newer, weirder, queerer, vital art. I'll put a link to their fundraising campaign in the episode notes. That concludes today's podcast, Revivalists. If you like what you heard today, head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a rating and review. If you haven't done it yet, please complete the survey over at Wondery.com survey and tell your friends about this show. If you have any questions or comments, I'm reasonably quick to respond on Twitter. Uh, we're at Radio Drama. Thank you for listening to Radio Drama Revival. Now, 
here are some credits. Our theme music is Danger Did You Do by DJ Stranger Danger from Oakland, California. You can find his music on SoundCloud. Our line producer is Eli McElveen, whose other work can be found at albasalix.com. Our other line producer is Matthew Boudreaux, whose work can be found all over the place, but especially right now at uberduo.com, which he runs with Monique. Monique Boudreaux and Heather Cohen are our researchers, and they make this whole thing go. Our executive producer is Fred Greenhalge, who never stops making audio drama. You can hear his work on The Cleansed, The Dark Tome, Lock and Key, or pretty much anywhere great audio fiction is made. I'm your host, David Reinstrom, and this has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers welcome.